Father, we thank you that we get to stand in this place today and sing in victory that your son, Jesus Christ, has conquered the grave, that he came and fought the battle that we were too weak to fight, and that he stands victorious forever over the enemy. And we thank you that we get to freely receive by faith this gift of grace and salvation in his name and what he has accomplished for us. And yet, Lord, even as we rejoice in your victory, we admit that we are at times prone to allowing ourselves to be limited by our own weakness. And that at times we allow our own weakness and our inadequacy and our insufficiency and our insecurity to blind us of your strength and of your power. And so, Lord, will you today give us a vision of the victory of Jesus that obliterates all of our inadequacies. That we could see in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our fears, in spite of our doubts, you can still powerfully display your glory through us. So Father, today will you give us the courage to admit that we are weak? Give us the strength to admit that we are not strong and turn our eyes upon the strength of your son, Jesus. Father, today, will you once again speak words that edify your gathered church and glorify the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Today, once again, will you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts now. We ask all of these things in the mighty, matchless name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles um, to Judges chapter 6. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. If you are new with us, here with us today for the first time, um, my name is Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And I'm not doing a Johnny Cash impression this morning. I just don't have a voice, y'all. So we're going to, going to power through this thing. And, and so um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat somewhere near you. And there's a table of contents that will help you find the book of Judges. And then you're looking for the big number, chapter six. That's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, we've laid a, all of the foundational groundwork for the book of Judges. And so I just encourage you, go online, get caught up, because we're going to jump right into things together this morning. The book of Judges is really divided up between the narratives of what we might call minor judges and major judges. And we don't call the minor judges minor because their stories are less significant. We call them minor judges just because their stories are shorter. Um, so up to this point in time, we've seen short stories of several minor judges. We saw a couple weeks ago the stories of Othniel and Ahud and Shamgar. And then last week we saw uh, the male-female tag team duo of, of Barak and Deborah fulfilling the calling that the Lord had placed upon his people to call them back to the word when they had fallen in rebellion to him. And, and the two major judges that the book of Judges is primarily built around, the most famous one is a guy named Samson. His story comes at the end of the book of Judges, and we'll spend about four weeks studying his life when we get there. Today, we're going to look at the story of the first of the two major judges, which is the story of Gideon. Uh, love this story. Um, name my firstborn son, Gideon, if that tells you what I think of, of this guy's life and legacy and what what his story means to me personally through, through scripture. So we're we'll looking today at the story of Gideon. The uh, great Christian missionary Hudson Taylor once said, all God's giants have been weak people. All God's giants have been weak people. And several weeks down the road, again, we'll see 
through the story of Samson that God is not impressed with any of our strength. And in fact, sometimes our strength is the very thing that most gets in the way of the Lord using us as instruments for his glory. But even as the Lord is not impressed with our strength, the encouragement we're going to see together for the next few weeks is that while God's not impressed with our strength, he's also not limited by our weakness. All throughout scripture, all throughout church history, we see stories of people who God powerfully displayed his might through their weakness. God's glory is always most powerfully displayed through the lives of the people who appear to have the least to offer. So from Judges chapter six this morning, what we'll see in the life of Gideon is that the Lord chooses to use the weak in order to prove that he is strong. So Josiah Tobin from our elder team already read verses one through six this morning, kind of set the stage for us. It's, it's Groundhog Day in the book of Judges, amen? Uh, wash, rinse, repeat. We know how this story goes. God's people have fallen away from him. They've turned their backs to him. So the Lord allows them to be conquered by their enemies. They don't like that. It's causing them all kinds of problems. So once again, they cry out to the Lord for help. But this time, instead of immediately sending them a savior, the Lord sends them a sermon. And here's what we see in verses seven through 10. It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. So up to this point in time, he's raised up the judge. This time before he raises up the judge, he sends them a prophet to declare his word. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The Lord chooses to use the weak in order to prove that he is strong. And what verses seven through 10 show us first together this morning is that the Lord knows we are weak in obedience. The Lord knows that we are weak in obedience. The Lord is not surprised by our disobedience. And in fact, he anticipated our disobedience. He knew we would disobey. He knew that we would fall short. So he's not shocked when you and I disobey. The Lord knows that we're weak in obedience. So going back to verse one, again, the people of Israel do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And all throughout the book of Judges, every time they fall into these cycles, the cycle gets worse with every single time it repeats. This point in time, they're so scared that they've been driven away from their homes. They're hiding in, in dens, they're hiding in caves. And the Midianites are like the bully who just keeps beating them up and stealing their lunch every single day. Even, even as we'll see with Gideon in just a moment, they're having to hide their food because they can't survive under the oppression of the Midianites. So the cycle's gotten worse. It says in verse six, they were brought very low because of Midian. So they cry out to the Lord and then the judge's cycle starts to repeat. But again, this time, instead of immediately raising up the judge, the Lord sends a prophet to declare his word. And this is the indictment. He says, thus says the Lord, I delivered you from Egypt. I have multiple times now delivered you from the hands of your oppressors. I said I would be your God. I warned you, don't mix worship of me with the idols of the nations. Verse 10, but you have not obeyed my voice. He sees their disobedience. In spite of the Lord's repeated deliverance, the people lived in persistent disobedience to him. There comes a point in time where, where we, if we're not careful, will actually find ourselves taking the grace of God for granted. 
They've been down this road before, right? Like they've fallen into sin and then they're conquered by their enemies. And well, God said he would help us. So they raise up their voices and the Lord delivers them. And he's going to do it again, but not without a little bit of a lecture on the front end this time. Um, When I was in high school, you know, my parents made me get a job pretty much as early as it was you know, legal for me to work. My first job was at a, was at a Jersey Mike's and that is still my jam today. Um, and, and so, you know, my parents did, you know, what, what a lot of parents think strive to do. They bought me kind of a junk car, you know, for my first car, just so I could get from, from A to B. And I had to pay the gas and the insurance and all those other things. And so I was working and, and making money. But I remember one year, I think it was around Christmas, um, the pay cycles, the, the way they fell, it was kind of an early payday, which meant it was gonna be a few weeks before I got paid again. And so I didn't really have the foresight to consider man, it's, it's going to be three weeks before I get another paycheck. And so, you know, I did what, what every responsible teenager did. I spent my whole paycheck on Chick-fil-A and, and, and stuff that I wanted and hanging out with my friends. And so it's a few days before the next pay cycle and my car is like on the E and, and I'm like, oh man, I'll get paid for a few days. So I go to my dad, I was like, hey dad, I don't, I don't have enough. I don't get paid, you know, for a few more days. Like I don't have enough money right now for gas. While I was holding a Chick-fil-A cup in my hand and and, 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 you know, my dad did what I think any good parent does in that moment. He's like, well, there's your gas money right there. And then, you know, he pointed to some, some football cleats that I had just bought not long before and a bunch of other stuff that I'd done with, with my friends. And, and he reminded me the real problem, it wasn't that I did not have enough money. The real issue was that I was not responsible with the money that I had been given. And, and so my dad in this moment, you know, he, he makes sure I understand, like, you, you should not be in this situation to begin with. And then I think for no other reason than the fact that he just didn't want to drive my tail around himself. He said, listen, I'm going to put some gas in your car. But the next time you get in this situation, you got to figure it out on your own. If you got to walk to work, if you got to call friends to, you know, to, to help you get to where you need to go, because we've, we've provided you a car, we've, we've, you've got a job, you shouldn't be in this situation. And ultimately, he, he does help me out, but, but not without a little bit of a lecture on the front end. Now, there's a right way for me to respond to that, and there's a wrong way for me to respond to that. The right way to respond is go, you know what, dad's right. That's right. Like I, I have a job. I need to have better foresight. I need to be responsible. Um, I, I need to be more careful with my money, you know, and make sure that, that it's, it's going to the right things. And man, my dad, even though this is my fault, he showed me this great kindness by filling up my gas tank. And I don't want to take advantage of that grace and kindness and find myself in this situation again. That's the right response. Here's the wrong response. I can do this again and dad will just bail me out. And that's exactly where Israel was. We, we can just keep doing this. We can keep repeating these same cycles. We can keep going back and doing these things. God's love, God's gracious, God's merciful. We can just cry out to dad for help and he'll send us the help that we need. And we'll see in just a moment, the Lord is faithful. He sends a judge, he sends a deliverer. But before he provides them with the savior, he preaches to them a sermon. So church, we, we need to, to make sure we don't miss this little detail before we get into Gideon's life this morning. Our God is a loving, gracious Father, and he's eager to provide us with what we need and to deliver us from our sins. But let's recognize when we fall sometimes into the same repeated patterns again and again and again, sometimes the Lord rebukes before he redeems. And growing in godliness, growing in maturity as a follower of Jesus Christ means being willing to receive the rebuke of the Lord when we fall out of step with his word. But his people go the opposite way. And as we'll see in just a little bit, they don't quite learn the lesson. The Lord knows that we're weak in obedience. Verses 11 through 18. Here's now the call of the judge of of Gideon. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, 
while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return." So the Lord knows that we are weak in obedience. Second, we see this morning, the Lord knows that we are weak in significance. He knows that we're weak in obedience. He knows that we're weak in significance. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago. We call this a theophany. This is a manifestation of the presence of God himself. It calls out to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, now, valor is a word that carries a sense of courage and, and a sense of bravery and a sense of honor. And the irony should not be lost on us. It certainly wasn't lost on Gideon. He is the opposite of all of those things. I mean, the first picture we get of Gideon is, is he is beating out wheat in a wine press. They're so afraid of the Midianites, of their enemies, that he's hiding where he's threshing wheat. They're so afraid they're just going to come and take all of these things, which again, you could do a deep dive on this. It was so impractical, both for the wheat and for the wine, for him to be doing this work there. I mean, like they're, they're making their lives harder for themselves because they are so afraid of their enemies. And the Lord comes after him and he, he speaks, oh, come mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon's like, really, really? And he's like, hey, I, Lord, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but things aren't exactly going well. We have fallen under the hand of our enemies. Things could not be possibly worse than they are right now. Where is this God? That's who you say you are. Like, where's this God who did all these mighty works that our fathers told us about? All those, all those miracles he did bringing them out of Egypt. Where's all that right now? He's like, because as best as I can tell, God has forsaken us. God has left us. That's why we're hiding here. How many of us have been in that exact same position before? Where we, man, we just look at our lives and it's like, how could things possibly be any worse? How could things possibly be any worse? You know, we're, we're afraid to be bold with our faith because we, we're just, man, this world's just going to crush us. We, we know that Christians don't necessarily have a great name and we're not, we're not necessarily loved and respected in our world the way that we used to anymore. We know that if we're open about our faith, somebody's probably coming after us for it. So we just, we just kind of sit in hiding and we're afraid. We see the world collapsing around us all around. We see our lives collapsing. We're, we're desperate to see God move somewhere and do something. And we're just in this place of transparency before the Lord. It's like, I read the stories, but where's all of that now? Like we come to church and we hear it preached and we sing about it. God is with you. God is for you. God will never leave you or forsake you. And it's like, well, I'm feeling pretty forsaken right now. 
And here's the good news and the encouragement for us today is in your moments of deepest doubt and insecurity, when you get to that place, when you are absolutely ready to just give up on the Lord, you can be confident in the moment that that is when he is most pursuing you. In the moment when your faith is at its weakest, that's when you're gonna find the Lord at his strongest. He chooses the weak. He loves to choose the weak. He loves to choose the insignificant. It was a year ago yesterday, my grandfather went home to be with the Lord. He was 92 years old when he, when he passed away. And um, he served in vocational Christian ministry for over 70 years in, in his life. And it's, it's a pretty cool story. I mean, just a, a coming of age story was, was his life. He was born in 1930, depression age, rural Alabama, just the, you know, the son of poor farmers. And as, as World War II, as things really got going, he, he came to faith in Christ, 1942, uh, around 12 years old. And around that time, he was really also feeling this, this call to, to preach, this call to share the gospel with others. And so he shared that with the pastor of the church. And at that point in time, their church had taken a really big hint, a big hit with men because a lot of men were off fighting the war. You know, they were, they were just gone. And so there was just a, a lack of male presence. They were just a group of, a smaller group of very godly women who were kind of holding the church together. And, but the church was really on the verge of like closing its doors and on collapse, brink of collapse. And so after a Sunday morning worship service, my grandfather, who was 14 years old at the time, is walking out and the pastor pulls him aside and says, tonight we're going to start preaching revival services and you're going to help me. Field promotion. <laughs> that was the call to ministry. 14 years old. And, and listen, my, my grandfather, again, like d- depression era, a poor family, um, not a great education, could hardly read but he had a burning passion to see people come to faith in Jesus. And over the next couple of weeks, dozens of people came to faith in Christ in a revival. And during that season in the church, so many people came to faith in Jesus that they actually had to build a new building during the war. And then you, you just follow the, the story that, that just continued to develop for him over the next six or seven decades. In the 1970s, uh, Temple Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee is where he pastored. It became one of the largest churches in the country at that point in time. And there's reached hundreds of people for Jesus Christ during his time in, in ministry there. And again, you're looking at, you're talking about somebody who, he's, man, he was even smaller than me, if you can believe that. Like, I just, I just don't, I'm not cut from the cloth of big people, right? And, and so he wasn't much to look at. He had no formal education. He really didn't get to go to seminary, you know, the way that so many do. But he had a passion for the glory of God and a desire to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's just one of those living, breathing examples, again, of how much the Lord loves to use the people that seem like they don't have anything to offer. And the same is true for you. The angel comes to him and says, mighty man of valor, go in this might of yours. How do you call a man a man of valor if he has no valor? How do you instruct him, go in this might of yours when he has no might that is his? How do we do this? Pay close attention to what happens at the end of this. The promise in verse 16, but I will be with you. Church, the Lord called him to go in the might that was his because the Lord himself was the might that was his. The good news of the gospel is that God does not just call us to go. He goes with the cult. He goes with us when he sends us. And, and so I just wonder this morning for all of us in this room, what is God maybe calling you to do that you are just terrified to do? 
you're scared to do. And, 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 and recognizing today, like he's, he's not calling you 10 years from now. Because the version of you 10 years from now is a rock star, right? Like you're awesome. 10 years from now, you're great. You've read the whole Bible a hundred times by then. Um, you, you never missed a day in your reading plan. You're, 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 you've led all of Beaufort to Jesus. You give away 100% of your income to the poor. Like that version of you is great, right? The version of you that has it all together. God's not calling the version of you that has it all together. He's calling the version of you that has doubts and has fears and has questions and doesn't have all the answers and is wondering, is God even there? That's the version of you he's calling. And so listen, you may be in that space today. You're like, maybe, man, we're, just, we're thinking maybe God's calling us you know, to, to foster or to adopt, but my goodness, like how are we gonna do that? How, how with our house and, and our kids and, and our finances and, and our home and like, can we meet the needs of, of this child and their family? Can we, can we do all these things, brother, sister? Go in the might that is yours. Go in the might that is yours. There's some problems in your marriage that you just, man, you're, you're just struggling to take ownership of. And, and both of you are just, you're, you're just kind of in the pride standoff right now. Like you're just convinced that it's the other person's issue. And you know you've got some stuff you need to own, but there's too much pride that's there. You need the Lord to break it down. Go in the might that's yours. Go in the might that is yours. Maybe you're wondering, like, is God calling me to some kind of ministry, like to be a pastor or worship leader or missionary? But man, I'm a new believer and I don't, I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of doubts. I I don't have all the answers on all these things. And I'm afraid that that I'm never going to be fully ready. Go in the might that is yours. Guys, I've been in ministry for 20 years. I'm still not ready. Still have no idea what I'm doing most of the time is how it feels. Go in the might that is yours. You can go in the might that is yours because the Lord himself is the might that is yours. He's not just calling you to go. He goes with the called. So go in the might that's yours. Now, very quickly here versus uh, what we see in the next section is the Lord meeting Gideon in his weak faith. Not faith. I'm just gonna summarize the next several verses here. Verse 18, Gideon says, if I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign stay while I prepare a gift. And so he prepares a meal for the angel of the Lord. And, and it's really important that the angel sticks around for this because at that point in time and, and that culture to share a meal with someone in a moment like this signified fellowship or partnership. It signified commitment. And so the angel has Gideon put the food on a rock and then Gideon touches the rock with a staff and then a fire consumes the meal. The angel vanishes and in verse 22, Gideon freaks out a little bit. He says, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face and it terrifies him. Because again, we know earlier from what Gideon said, he knows the stories. He knows that sinful people cannot dwell within the presence of a holy God. But even there in his fear, the Lord responds to Gideon the same way he responded to Jacob and to Moses and to Israel at Sinai. He just comforts him and says, do not be afraid. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon builds an altar and he calls it the Lord is peace. But as one altar is being built, others need to be torn down. So the angel instructs him. He says, your father has set up an altar to Baal, an Asherah pole. And he instructs him. He says, you go tear this altar down. And we see at the very end of verse 27 in this section that Gideon took 10 men and did as the Lord told him. But here we go. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, He did it by night. So the Lord knows that we are weak in obedience. He knows that we're weak in significance. Third, we see this morning, the Lord knows we are weak in confidence. The Lord knows we are weak in confidence. 
Gideon's seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He knows that the Lord's on his side, but it's still not quite enough. It's still not quite enough. Now, in his defense, again, it's, it's easy, I think, to make fun of Gideon and just kind of write him off as a coward. And, you know, it's, Gideon reminds me sometimes, you see those videos of people, like, they're thinking about jumping off the edge of, like, a waterfall or something. They keep running to the edge, and they'll freak out a little bit. And finally, they just, like, accidentally slip and go down back, like, smack their head on the back, and then they just, just kind of flip over a couple times and belly flop into the water. That's kind of what Gideon's obedience looks like most of the time. It's all right, we got in the water. Like the route we took to get there, maybe not the best, but we, we got there. And I think mean, let's, let's give him some credit. He does what the Lord instructs him to do, but he's lacking in confidence. He's afraid. He's afraid. You know, I have a, our staff has, we take Fridays off. And the last couple Fridays, I've spent at least an hour of my day each week watching the new miniseries Masters of the Air, um, which I've loved. It, it kind of follows the heels of like Band of Brothers in the Pacific, for those of you who watch those series. And it's, it's about the 100th bomb group during World War II. And, and it's uh, a couple episodes in, and, and what one of the early episodes recounts was kind of this rivalry that existed early on between the American pilots and the pilots who are part of the Royal Air Force. And where, where the, the, the American pilots and the RAF differed in World War II, at least in this stage of the war, was um, the RAF was carrying out all their bombing missions at night, um, which kept more of them alive, but wasn't terribly effective because they couldn't see where they were dropping bombs. And, and then the, the U.S. was carrying out their missions during the day um, so they could see their targets, but it meant a whole, lot, meant a whole lot more pilots were going down because it was far more dangerous to do this in the day than the night. And, and so one of the episodes recounts this rivalry where they're kind of having this back and forth. You know, on the side of the RAF, those guys are going, hey, um, uh, more of you would be alive if you would fly at night instead of during the day. But then, of course, the American pilots are like, or maybe your issue is you don't have the guts to fly during the day. And, uh, and, and so it was just kind of this back and forth tension of how do we carry out the mission but also stay alive at the same time? Well, Gideon found a way to do both. He, he's like, all right, like, I, I'm going to do what the Lord says. A little bit freaked out about it, so, so I'm going to go at night. He finds a solution where he's able to both accomplish the mission and stay alive. To his credit, again, he goes through with what the Lord asks him to do. And, and I don't want us to miss that this morning, church, because we're told he's scared, but we're not actually told that the Lord was angry at him for being scared. It just tells us he was afraid. And what I think we can draw from him in this section is that it's better for you and I to walk in cowardly obedience to God's plan than it is to live in courageous defiance of what he's calling us to do. It's better to walk in cowardly obedience than it is to live in courageous defiance. It's better to be obedient and afraid than disobedient and bold. Friend, the Lord knew what he was getting when he called you. And the good news for you and I today is he does not need us to be brave. He does not need us to be strong. He does not need us to be confident. He knew what he was getting when he called us, which is why he promised to be everything that we need. Going on, verses 28 through 35, Gideon now carries out this plan, and so here's the response of the people. It says, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. 
Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And I love the response of Joash here is brilliant. If you go back and read the earlier section, you find out it was actually his altar that was being torn down. And so if anybody here has the right to be upset, it's him, but he's a stand-up guy. And he stands up for his son and he responds in the most brilliant way possible. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by the morning. So he's basically saying to these guys, listen, if, if, if you go do this for Baal, what you're basically telling him is you're a weak God. We don't think you can handle this yourself. And so he kind of puts them in, in that place. So he says, if he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. So the Lord knows that we are weak in obedience. He knows that we're weak in significance. The Lord knows that we're weak in confidence. Fourth, we see this morning, the Lord knows that we are weak in repentance. The Lord knows we are weak in repentance. You go back to the beginning of chapter six, the Lord had sent a prophet to rebuke the people for their false worship. They had set up an altar to a pagan God. They had set up Asherah poles that they were worshiping. And the prophet rebukes them for what they're doing, reminds them, you are in this situation because of your own sin. But in spite of the rebuke that they received at the word of the Lord, they did not turn and repent. And what we see in this section that we, we cannot miss this morning is it, it's really a picture of just how bad things had gotten. That the people cried out for help, they cried out for redemption, but they weren't willing to repent. And again, we're not careful. We'll, we'll find ourselves in, in that exact same place where, man, everybody's eager to be saved, right? Everybody's eager to be delivered. Everybody's eager to be pulled out of all their problems. Everybody wants to be redeemed. The only problem is very few people actually want to repent. Everybody wants to receive the kingdom. Far fewer people want to bow their knees in submission to the lordship of the king. And what Israel is asking for here, by keeping the altar set up, by keeping the Asherah pole set up, they're basically saying, we want the Lord's redemption without repentance. And so here's the warning for all of us. If we will not turn from our sin at the word of the Lord, eventually the Lord will bring something into our life, someone into our life who will just come crashing it all down to the ground. And so we have that opportunity to turn. We have that opportunity to, to acknowledge where we've fallen short and, and where we need to turn, where we need to make adjustments. But eventually the Lord will just bring an influence into our life that brings us down. And the way you and I respond in that moment is evidence of the true nature of our hearts. You know, all of the, the pagan gods that constantly plagued the nation of Israel through the Old Testament, they really fell into the category of the same gods that plague us today, which are the gods of power and money and sex. 
They, they worshiped these gods because they wanted to oppress, they, they wanted uh, dominance over their enemies and they, they wanted protection from their enemies. They worshiped these gods because they wanted financial and material prosperity. They worshiped these gods because they wanted sexual pleasure. And this is the delusion that Israel had fallen under. They fell under the delusion of believing that they could worship both at an altar to the Lord and at an altar to Baal. And what it shows, what we see here in these few verses is that the Lord doesn't play at two different altars. The Lord doesn't play at two different altars. It eliminates the possibility of you and I being able to worship at two different altars. They're sorry for the circumstances that they're in, but they are not broken and repentant over how they've grieved the heart of God. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And he talks about the difference between just kind of feeling sorry for our sin and actually experiencing genuine repentance that turns us away. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. Yes, how can I tell if something has become an idol in my life? How can I tell if something has become a false god that I'm actually now worshiping? Here's a really good indicator. How do you respond when someone comes and tears it down? Do you respond by repenting or do you retaliate? But when the Lord sends someone to speak his word into our hearts and into our lives, do you remember the words of the proverb that tell us faithful are the wounds of a friend? Do you rejoice and say, Lord, thank you for sending a brother. Thank you for sending a sister who loved me enough to look me in the eyes and say, this is not God's best for you. The path you are on is one that's leading you to destruction and it's one that's gonna cause you problems. And I love you so much and I don't wanna see you go down that road. When, when, when someone comes and, and cuts our idol to the ground, do we rejoice or do we retaliate? Are we incensed? You know, you just kind of become a toxic person. I think I need to cut you out of my life. A lot of people hiding behind that crap today as an excuse to not be real Christians. Just calling that like it is. Just kind of, you know, I don't really trust you anymore. I'm, just, I'm not really comfortable around you anymore. I feel like you just become a very judgmental person. Hiding behind all this stuff. When someone confronts sin in your life, do you rejoice in the goodness of God and the opportunity to turn to him and be restored to right relationship to him? Or do you retaliate by rejecting his word and cutting the people who preach it out of your life? But here's good news for us that this morning. The Lord knows we're weak in repentance. The Lord knows we could not turn our hearts to him on our own. So he sent his son Jesus to turn our hearts back to him for us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to send the ultimate savior because we can't save ourselves. He knows that we're weak in repentance. And so as we, we go on the, the last uh, section here, he's rallied up the people. He's rallied up the people. Now he's, you know, he's, he's ticked off the whole like region, right? Everybody's ready to come kill him. I mean, he cut down their false God and, and nobody, listen, people get upset when you kick them in the idols, right? Like it's, it gets really ups, it's, it's difficult. And so everybody's extremely upset about this. This whole army is now rallying up against him. And so here's Gideon, in spite of everything he's seen, he's ready to go, kind of, kind of. And so here, here we go one more time with Gideon verses 36 through 40. It says, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, 
Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. The Lord chooses to use the weak in order to prove that he's strong. He knows what he's getting when he calls us. He knows that we're weak in obedience. He knows that we're weak in significance. He knows that we're weak in confidence. He knows we're weak in repentance. And fifth, this morning we see the Lord knows that we are weak in assurance. He knows we're weak in assurance. Now, we could launch about a six-month study on what's going on in these five verses today. We're not going to do that. There's a lot of opinions about what's going on in these five verses. In the book of Judges, there's a lot of spots where, where scholars are really like on polar opposite sides. Like, hey, what's, what's really going on here? You know, so some say that this is a sign that's just for Gideon. Um, others claim that Gideon was seeking this sign for Israel. Some say that the fleece drinking up the dew is a metaphor for how the Midianites had devoured the land and then the dew being wrung out is evidence of how the Lord would return what Israel had lost. Some argue that by doing this, Gideon had fallen into a terrible sin um, that we should not ourselves repeat. Others argue, you know, what Gideon did here was okay and you and I can follow his example as well. So what do we do with all that? Uh, what, what, what do we do with, with all of these opinions? Well, go back a, a few weeks. We, as we laid the foundations for the book of Judges. We, we need to remember that as we read the book of Judges, what is descriptive is not necessarily always what is prescriptive. Just because we see somebody doing something doesn't mean that's what the Lord desires or intends. And so this is one of those places we need to be really, really careful that our opinions aren't imposed on Scripture. We, we want to say no more and no less than what the text of Scripture actually says. What we know from this is Gideon seems to indicate that the Lord was maybe angry by what he did. Because he says the second time, let not your anger burn against me. At the same time, we don't actually have a verse that says the Lord was angry at Gideon for doing this. And, and so I think that's, again, we just, we got to hold opinions with, a, with an open hand here. But here's, here's what I think we can land on here together this morning. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. This is what we know. We know that Gideon was lacking in assurance and we know that the Lord gave him the assurance that he lacked. This is, this is not Gideon testing to find out what the will of God is. Like, hey, I'm going to lay the fleece here, and if it's wet, then we will go. And if, I, if it's not wet, then we, then we won't go. God had already revealed his will. He'd already revealed his will was to, to go after the Midianites. Gideon wasn't so much doing this to test the will of God. He was doing it to find assurance in the will that God had already revealed. And so th these are, it's a little bit different territory than, than just saying you know, that he was going out there to like, like, you know, it's like if you, you got a big decision to make and you grab your Columbia jacket, you know, out of your closet or something. And you're like, I was throw it in the driveway tonight. And that's problematic because do, you know, Buford's like hundred percent humidity all the time. And I think we could maybe get some false signs in there. And so, so again, we just asked the question, like, what do, what do we do with this? Like, is this, is this the type of practice that we should be pursuing? And, and so he, here's what I think we can land on confidently today. Is, is God is happy to reveal himself to us as long as we are seeking assurance in all the right things. And this is what we know. God has revealed his will to us in his word. He reveals his will to us through the indwelling power and presence and work of the Holy Spirit. 
He reveals his will to us through the counsel and the wisdom of other brothers and sisters in Christ as we gather together and we fellowship together as the people of God. But the most powerful sign God gave of all was the sign of giving his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign that the Lord is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And so if you're in this space this morning where you just, man, you've got a lot of doubts, you've got a lot of questions about the faithfulness of God. Is God with me? Has God forsaken me? Will God go with me if I step into this thing? If you have doubts this morning, you lack confidence and assurance. Friend, you don't need to look any further than the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the only sign you need to know whether or not God loves you, to know whether or not he's merciful, to know whether or not you can be forgiven, to know whether or not you can be redeemed, to know whether or not you can walk and live according to his will. If you lack confidence today, look at the cross of Christ because that is our ultimate sign that our God will do as he has promised to do. I think a good New Testament parallel, this comes from Mark chapter nine. You know, man comes to Jesus and and his son has an unclean spirit. He has a demon. And he comes to Jesus. He's heard the story. He's heard the testimony of Jesus. And he says, hey, my son, he's, he's oppressed. If you will, or if you can, you will make him clean. And how does Jesus respond? He says, if I can. I'm like the Jesus, bro. Like, uh, if I can. And he says, if I can. He goes, no, no, no. All things are possible for the one who believes. And how's the father respond? I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I see it, I see it, I, I, I trust it, that's why I'm here. But man, there, there is still this, within me, just this little shred, this 1% that I just can't move past and I don't want it to be there. So move me past that, help my unbelief. And once again, we see Jesus was glad to meet him there. He was glad to provide him with the assurance that he lacked. And so you and I can be confident today. If you are lacking assurance of faith in your salvation, in God's plan for your life, and his purpose for your life, his ability to forgive you, if you're lacking assurance, you only need one sign, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ, where God proves his ultimate faithfulness to you. So as we close this morning, I want to give us just three challenges in response, three invitations for you today. He chooses the weak. He chooses the weak in order to prove that he's strong. And so I want to give us just three invitations here as we close this morning. First invitation is to give him your weakness and then give him your work and ultimately give him your worship. Give the Lord your weakness. Give the Lord your weakness. The promise for you today is that he will empower you with strength Give the Lord your work, whatever it is he's calling you to do. The promise for you as it was for Gideon is that he will clothe you with his spirit. And give him your worship. He is the one who has saved you from your sin. And listen, he will not tolerate you worshiping at two different altars. Before you can experience true and genuine worship to the one true God, you, you've got to tear down every altar of sin in your life and lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ and repentance. Listen, this is going to be, I hope, good news for somebody in this room today. If you miss everything I said up to this point, just hang on to this one thing. Whatever fear you're experiencing today, whatever doubts you're feeling, no matter how weak your faith feels, if you're ready, you're just hanging by a thread and you're, you're ready to give up on all these things, 
please, please hear that this for you this morning. The Lord doesn't need you to be strong. He doesn't need you to be strong. He doesn't need you to be bold. He doesn't need you to be brave. He doesn't need you to be courageous. The Lord doesn't need you to be strong. Friend, today you can go from this place in the might that you have because the Lord himself is the might that you have. He intentionally chooses the weak. He wants the weak ones. He chooses those who are weak in order to prove that he is strong and he will prove his strength in your weakness today. So will you bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning? In just a moment, we're gonna take communion together. And communion is a, it's a visible representation. It's a sign, in a sense, of remembrance. It's where we remember the cross. It's where we turn our eyes to the place of ultimate faithfulness. You and I, in our weakness, could never pay the price for our sins. We needed a savior. We needed a deliverer. We needed somebody who could come do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and to turn our hearts back to the Lord. And that is exactly what Christ accomplished for us through his life and death and resurrection. And so let's just lay before the Lord. Let's confess before him our sin, the places in our life where we've set up different altars, where we've tried to worship in two locations. Ask the Lord to give you an undivided heart that he would wholeheartedly receive your worship. Confess your weakness to him. Maybe all you need to pray today to the Lord is I can't do this and to mean it. In your weakness, you will find him strong. And then go in the might that's yours. Give him your work. Even if it means scared obedience, that's way better than bold disobedience. Go in the might that's yours because the Lord himself is the might that's yours. So Father, as we remember your son, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished for us today, root our confidence and our assurance in him once again as we remember him and what he's done for us. We ask all these things in his mighty matchless name and everyone said, amen, amen.